As we turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, several of you will probably have a little heading at the top of this new chapter. It's page 824 in the black Bibles in the seats around you. Chapter numbers are those larger bold print numbers. And so that heading in my Bible or the ones in the black seats around you says, Teaching About Divorce. Merry Christmas. It's December. The most wonderful time to do a teaching about divorce. Seems odd. Well, if you're new to our church, we don't pick certain things based on the calendar seasons of the year. This teaching is just because it's the next section. We're working through the gospel according to Matthew, and this is the book of the Bible I'm teaching us through. So some of you are here today, and you might just love everything that Jesus has to say about marriage, divorce, gender. There might be a lot of amens in your heart, or even if you want, you're free to say amen out loud if you are excited about the truth that you hear from Jesus. But some of us might struggle with Jesus' teaching about marriage, divorce, and gender because it's a painful topic. Maybe we have been divorced Maybe some of you know people in your family and have seen the devastation on divorce. And so just it bringing up, regardless of what Jesus has to say about it, it's just not a comfortable topic. There are others, maybe of you, that have less personal ties with this issue. It's not so much the pain and the heart, but rather the struggle of how it might feel outdated or old-fashioned or like get with the times, Jesus, it's the 21st century doesn't he know that we've changed definitions about marriage and gender? Where others may be tempted to think, you know, I'm single. I don't even know if I ever want to get married. Why do I want to sit through a teaching about marriage and divorce? Like, why should I even care? And then maybe there's just some of us that are like, look, it's Christmas season. It's already sometimes a challenging time for many people. Maybe you're just wanting to get away and get to church and hear something uplifting and encouraging about hope or peace, and then you open up your program and you see, oh, Jesus on divorce. So there's where maybe some of us are at, and maybe many other places. It's, I think, helpful for me to just acknowledge that we're coming at this from different angles, and there's probably important words that we should address for each of us, you know, especially if you were in that category of, I'm single, why should I care? Well, Jesus was single, and he really cared about this. And then also, come next week, because we're going to take this passage into two parts. This week is Jesus, the reason you should stay married. Next week, Jesus, the reason to be single. For the very next teaching after this one on divorce and marriage is some very profound words about singleness that I hope all of you will get the chance to hear. So realize that there's not all that you can say in one teaching, but that you should be like Jesus and talk about and promote and support marriage, whether you are married or single, divorced, etc. This is an important topic that obviously relates to so many of us, regardless of its controversial nature in our culture or our world or our own families and lives. So what does the story of Christmas have to do with Jesus' teaching on divorce? Anything? Yeah, actually a lot. The story of the birth of Jesus 
is wrapped up in a divorce controversy. Matthew chapter 1, I think it's behind me here, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal, not a common word when we're proposing to our bride to be betrothal. It's like engagement, but in the courthouse. That's my quick fill definition of betrothal. Engagement in the courthouse, like you're engaged, and then you've legally filed to be married, and that you're technically married, but you haven't had the wedding yet, and so you're not living together and doing all that you would do as a married person. That's betrothal. Courthouse legal, officially connected, but not yet fully married. So then you've got Mary and Joseph in this betrothal status. If they're going to separate from each other, it would be a legal action of divorce. So keep reading the story. It says in verse 18 and 19, before they came together, meaning their wedding day, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And that's when everyone in the community gasps. What? Betrothed, not yet living together. Joseph has not been with this woman. Before they came together, she's pregnant. So verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He was, he was kind. He wasn't wanting to make a big deal about it. In fact, if he was going to obey the Old Testament, she should be stoned to death. Thankfully, for Mary's case, even if Joseph wanted to do that, Roman law wouldn't allow him to stone her to death. Death penalty was done away with from the Jewish teachings of the Old Testament. John chapter 8 provides another helpful background to Jesus and the controversy around his birth. They, in this sentence, is some religious Jewish teachers, Pharisees. Jesus is having kind of a heated exchange in this section of John 8, and he says to them a few things, and they say back, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. He said, we were not born of, and this is the most common translation, I think a better one would probably be, we weren't born out of fornication or out of wedlock. We have one father, even God. And so Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Do you see how the sending of Jesus into the world bursts onto the scene with all kinds of controversy about how he was born, the marriage of Mary and Joseph? And so this topic that we're addressing is very much an Advent topic in some respects. And hopefully we'll see that as we go along. I want to give you the big idea before I read our text, the key text. Big idea. The whole point of Christmas. The whole point of this sermon message. And I think the bigger point of the passage that we're about to read, not the only point, but the bigger point of what Jesus is doing in Matthew 19 is to restore God's very good plans of creation. Jesus has come He has been born into the world. He was a human for 33 plus or minus years, and he came in order to restore God's very good plan 
of creation. That word very good comes from Genesis 1.31. After all was created, it wasn't just good. It was very good, God said. So let me read the passage, and then let's see how Jesus restores the very good creation. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here's the outline of the message. Three steps that we will work through to see the big idea that Jesus has come to the earth to restore God's very good plan of creation. First, the first two verses will show us that Jesus restores by healing. Second, Jesus restores by his teaching. The way he responds to the questions he's asked, we'll see that in verses 3 through 9. And then third, we will see that Jesus restores by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Or you could just say by his dying to sum all that up, or the gospel. And in fact, since we're doing kind of two weeks on this text, and there is much that we could discuss and debate and dive into, this is to be an introduction into the topic. It is to be a big picture flyover, and here's the idea. Point one should be really quick. Point two should be a little longer, and point three should be the main thing. That's at least what I'm hoping. We'll see how I do at execution. Point one, Jesus restores by healing. Verse one and two says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Two things to point out in verse one. First, Jesus had finished these sayings is the writer of Matthew's way of saying, Jesus just finished a long teaching section. So if you look back in chapter 18 and you're like, Oh yeah, he kind of just did have a whole chapter of teaching on how we live together and fight sin in community. That's been the last several weeks of messages. He's done that. There's five of these large teaching sections, and now you know that number four is over. Because Matthew has the little line, now when Jesus finished these sayings, at the end of every single one of Jesus' big teaching. So what am I trying to say? This little line here is just a transitional marker to show we're moving on to another section. Is that fun? All right, well, I kind of think it's cool. Well, then it says Jesus went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. What's important to realize here is that Jesus is moving south toward Jerusalem, and from this point on, he is on his journey to the cross. 
That's where we'll find ourselves. You're going to see him increasingly getting closer and closer. And therefore, the closer you get to the the cross, the closer you get to Jerusalem, the more opposition you will see. So it shouldn't be surprising that you see verse 1. Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem. Verse 3, testing is happening from the Pharisees. And this will be a theme throughout the rest of the gospel. Verse 2, large crowds were following him and he healed them there. Jesus restores the broken creation, the sin-sick creation by his healing power. Don't let that pass by. Let's make sure that is at least a point. Jesus has come to the world in order to restore the broken humanity physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Are you feeling broken and hurting within? Jesus is calling. Come to him. Receive his healing grace. This is what he does. He has done it his entire existence, which is eternal. Jesus is a restorer, and he shows that in his human life here in this text. Point two. How was that? Was that good? Point one? Point two. Jesus restores by teaching. So here what we're going to do is just kind of work through the flow between this discussion They say something, Jesus says something. They say something, Jesus says something. So first, we have Pharisees. Who are they? They are religious sects, like a group. So if you think, if you've ever heard Christians, there's like Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and etc. There's different groups. There was different groups of Jewish people. These group of Jewish people came up in between the Old and New Testament, intertestamental period. Lots you could say, but that's who he's talking to. They would have been very much concerned about how to obey the Ten Commandments and the teaching of the Torah or the Old Testament law. So they're very much about teaching and the laws and wanting to obey them. And they had all these extra rule books. And so they know that Jesus has taught on this topic before. Because he has. Read Matthew chapter 5 and you'll see Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's taught on marriage. He's taught on divorce, so they know. That's why it says they came up to him and they tempted him. It's the same word used for Satan in the wilderness when Jesus is led out after his baptism in the wilderness and Satan himself is tempting Jesus to sin. That's the word. They're testing, trying to trick and twist Jesus into a trap. So how are they going to do that? How are they going to put Jesus into a bind or trap? By asking this hot question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? May not seem like a hot topic issue for you today. Maybe it doesn't seem like a hot topic issue on the news today. It would probably be the equivalent of asking one of the presidential candidates of some party and say, well... What's your views on gun control or something? Like, whoa, that's a loaded question, right? And that's the kind of question this was in Jesus' day. There is an ongoing debate and discussion. We're kind of entering into the middle of a conversation, a conversation amongst Jewish people. And it's one of those things where, like, if you don't have that conversation, have you ever kind of hopped into the middle of a conversation? Like, whoa, what's going on here? That's what's going on when you read this Bible passage. The conversation is about Deuteronomy 24. If you want to write that down and read it, at your first glance, you start reading Deuteronomy 24. It may seem a little strange and weird, but so it is the Old Testament. 
The conversation is about a phrase in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, about when a man divorces his wife for a matter of indecency, and there's a debate about how to interpret the phrase a matter of indecency in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And there's three different kind of views. There's the Shammai view, the Hillel view, and the Rabbi Akiba view. There's these three different rabbis, Hillel, Shammai, and Akiba. And here's what I'm trying to get at. There's all of this controversy going around about that passage in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and they're wondering to know, hey, I wonder where Jesus lands. Well, we've kind of heard already. And if we get him on record saying what he said before, this could help get him in some hot water. Because what he said in Matthew 5 was far stricter than all three of the other rabbis. In fact, when you read Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, your righteousness should exceed the scribes and Pharisees and Jewish leaders. Oh, I heard some things you've heard said, but I'm going to tell you something more. That's Matthew 5. And so they want to get Jesus on record as he's moving toward Jerusalem. So is it lawful to divorce anyone's wife for any cause? By the way, that's the Hillel view. You can divorce your wife if she messes up your dinner. That's in there. Like, I read that several times this week. You spoil the man's soup, woman, I'm done with you. That was how flippant the view was for many Jewish people in the day. Then Shumai was, well, under certain matters, if there was some sort of sexual immoral practice, then there could be divorce. Akiba was far worse. He was just like, yeah, whatever, you can just divorce your wife. I think Akiba, the quote I read, he said, if you don't like the way she looks anymore, divorce her. So do you see the controversy? Like this is quite a range of views amongst these Jewish folks. And they're wanting to know where Jesus stands. So what does he say? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father, his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Huh, wow. Guys, there are multiple like wow moments. The first phrase, have you not read? Have you not read? And then he quotes the first two pages of the Bible. Do you notice the little like, <clears throat> It's kind of right there in the Bible. Have you ever read it before? And he's talking to people that memorized the whole Bible. Like this is their living to be devoted to the Bible. They pride themselves at being Bible nerds and scholars. I just don't think you've read the first page very well. That's startling, isn't it? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And then he directly quotes, and notice this. This is also one of those wow moments. And said, and then you got to ask yourself, who said? Like Jesus is saying, and Jesus then said that verse? No, no, no. That's not the way this verse reads. The subject of this verse is, have you not read that he, the creator, who created them male and female, he said. Why, why am I saying it like that? Because Moses wrote Genesis. 
But who said what Moses wrote? According to Jesus, the creator. Why do you think a church like Embassy cares much about the word of God? Because if we want to say we follow Jesus, then let's follow Jesus' view of the Bible. Jesus' view of the Bible is that when Moses wrote something in Genesis 1, he can easily just translate that as God said that. Just insert, switch them out. Moses said, oh, I mean, well, God said that. And that's how Jesus talks when he quotes then this verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Jesus' addition, that last sentence. He quotes the text from Genesis 2. The text that says a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they are one flesh. They're joined together. The Hebrew text uses a word for glue or cement. Back when I taught this in Genesis, one of our church members came up, and they used to be a welder. Anybody ever done welding before? Okay, some of you. Okay, so I did not know this, but welders told me and came up to me after I preached that message and said, do you realize Because the word could be like welding two things together. He says, when you're doing welding, you have to take an exam. And the exam tests how good you are at your welding. Because if you're welding something together, you don't want it to come apart. Because it's going to be like a bridge. And you don't want the welding job to come apart. And then the whole bridge collapse. Like, this is important. you got to make sure you get it right. So to test the job of the welder, the weld should be stronger than the other metal of the two pieces that are coming together. So they take the weld that you do. You do a practice round. You put it in this machine, and this machine has just all this power, and it pulls and stretches these big, thick pieces of metal, and it pulls, and he says it's this loud, like, I think that was the way he did it. But it's this loud noise, and it's just ripping apart to test, will the weld break or not? And he says, if you're a good welder, the weld won't break but eventually you'll hear a big pop and the metal will break at another new point because the weld stays strong. That's the word. The picture you should have in mind in Genesis 2. Two will become one flesh and they will be cemented together like a welder welding two pieces of metal. That's why Jesus says, God is joining two people together. Let man never separate that. Never And that's Jesus' answer to the question. That's not even close to what you would hear from Akiba or Shammai or Hillel. They're wrapped up in Deuteronomy 24, and he's like, guys, page one. Let me redirect your attention. Let us refocus. What did I say the big idea was? Let's restore the very good plan of creation. That's what he's doing here. So they say, verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? This picture behind me is what I imagined Jesus was doing. Right here behind me. This one.
When you get to this part of the conversation, it's hard to not imagine Jesus going, shake my head, oh my. You are so far off missing the point. Why do I say that? Because Moses never commanded to give a certificate of divorce. Go read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. There is no command about giving divorce certificates. It's just saying that when divorce happens, and because it's so rampant, we need to put some reins around this. That's Deuteronomy 24. It has nothing to do with like, well, you know, if your wife is indecent, well, then you should divorce her. I command you to divorce them. That's not the text. They misread Deuteronomy 24. So that's the first problem of like, are you serious, guys? Second problem is that Jesus is helpfully pointing out the whole point of Deuteronomy 24 is that because of the hardness of hearts, because of sin, because of the devastation of people's broken lives, the verse shouldn't even exist. Moses should not have to even say that. The original plan of creation was that God joined people together and that they would never separate. So he doubles down. Look at what he says. Because of the hardness of the heart of Moses allowed to... Per- you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Stop talking about Moses. Deuteronomy 24 is the wrong conversation. He's redirecting them to Genesis 1 and 2 and saying, this is the ideal. The divine ideal should be permanence in marriage. Not, let's debate and discuss when and we can or cannot divorce our wives. So then he adds, and I say to you, very similar to that Matthew 5 text, those of you that remember Matthew 5, you've heard it said, but now I say to you, and now I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for, and it's that same word we saw in John 8, porneia, often translated best as fornication, or marital relations before you're actually married, and marries another, commits adultery. There is way too much that is in verse 9 for us to cover in great detail. So, Let me just help us think about this from the big picture. The big picture is regardless of how you view verse 9, regardless of what you think Jesus is giving an exception for in verse 9. Do you see the exception? Well, except for the case of porneia. So what's porneia? Well, I mentioned that most often it's translated as premarital relations. So is that it? Or could it include more? And that is an ongoing discussion by so many different Bible scholars and people. Lots of people will quickly just say, well, it's adultery. But look, the word adultery is in your text. I think if Jesus wanted to say adultery, he just would have said adultery. Except for the case of adultery, then you could get divorced. But otherwise, you'd be committing adultery. That's the word. Moikia is the word for adultery in the Greek. That's not what Jesus uses. He uses porneia. Why might he use that word? And I'll give you one hint. Remember how the sermon started? What does this have to do with Christmas? Because this is the only gospel writer that talks about the divorce that Joseph was contemplating because of Jesus' unnatural birth. Matthew is the only gospel writer that includes that story. And so it would make sense that he might include something about that with this exception clause of, well, with the exception of 
Joseph's case, that would have been fine. He would have been a just man to do that because they weren't yet married yet and he could get a certificate of divorce. At the minimum, that's what's going on. Is there more than that that's going on? Very likely, and a lot of debates and discussions could be had about that. But here's, here's what I would say to us. This is the way I feel about verse 9, the emoji. If we were to study this text, and we were to get to a place where all we're doing is trying to sit around and talk about when somebody can or can't have a divorce, you're doing the same exact thing. These guys are being rebuked by Jesus. The conversation should not be Deuteronomy 24. The conversation should not be verse 9 of Matthew 19. The conversation should be primarily Genesis 1 and 2. God wants to restore his very good plan of creation. It's like saying, let's spend all our time talking about how we could get D's and not fail in school. Let's spend all of our time figuring out how we could like score just a f- little bit of points in a game, or let's, let's try and be like not good, but like below average, but not completely fail. Is that what we're shooting for? Is Jesus shooting to come down to the earth, and the whole point of Christmas is for him to enter into humanity so we could kind of be a little below average? See, that's setting our mind on the wrong ideal. It's not trying to figure out when somebody can or cannot have divorce. So practically speaking, practically speaking, if you're going to come and talk to me about whether or not you have grounds for biblical divorce, we may or may not talk about that for a while until we have further investigated, have you done everything to fight for your marriage? There may be a case where you have grounds to divorce your spouse. But friends, that should be the furthest thing from your mind. It should be the very last resort. And unfortunately, in the church and outside of the church, it's the first thing we have in our mind as soon as things get tough. Additionally, regardless of your view of what Jesus says in verse 9, like what I mean by that is if you think Jesus teaching is the way you want to live your life, and you're trying to figure out how do I apply verse 9, so when could I get a divorce or not, and you're down that road. The most broad view of reading this would still not account for the vast majority of Christians and non-Christians who are getting divorced. Do you realize that if you take Jesus' teaching and you make it mean a whole bunch of things. But still, it can't mean everything. It doesn't mean that like, well, we fell out of love. That's not grounds for divorce. Well, we just have different personalities now. That's not grounds for divorce. Well, God would want me to just be really happy. That's not grounds for divorce. Now, being abused, if you're being hurt or abused, different conversation. But if you're just saying like, I'm just not real happy all the time. Not grounds for divorce. Well, we've been fighting a lot, not grounds for divorce. He spends his money really poorly. I don't like the way she looks. I don't like the way he looks. We've just grown apart. On and on and on you can go. Since whatever the year was, 1960-something, that this country passed a bill that you could get divorced without any fault with the other person. It's called no-fault divorce. Divorce 
has skyrocketed, and the majority of divorces, both in the church and outside of the church, something like 70% the last I saw this, are no-fault divorces, meaning there was no sexual misconduct. Do you get the point why it's... Are we seriously talking right now at this point of where we're at as a culture about the fine-tunings of verse 9 when really the point should be, guys, let's fight for marriage. Let's fight for it. Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus is trying to restore, by his teaching, God's very good creation. Third and finally, Jesus is trying to restore his very good creation through his life, his death, his resurrection, his burial, his ascension to heaven, the gospel. Here's what I want to do. I want to think about the gospel through the lens of what we've just talked about in regards to marriage. I think this hopefully will be the most important and significant thing you hear all day. The Bible and the story in it can be summarized as a marriage. There's lots of ways to summarize the Bible, but for today's sake, let's summarize the Bible story as a marriage. It's a marriage between God and humans. God is the husband and humans are the wife. In the beginning of the Bible, it was very good and this marriage was going well. And then all went bad. The marriage partners got separated from one another because of the wife, the humans, rebelling against their husband, not submitting and not wanting to obey. God, the husband, goes after his bride. She runs, but thankfully he runs faster. And he's persistent. And God catches a man named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and reestablishes the marriage relationship. God and humans are back together in the story of the Bible. Well, sort of. They're not fully back together. It's as if at this point of the story in Genesis chapter 12, there's hope that they'd get back together. You could say Abraham and God and Israel were engaged to be married or betrothed to be married, but they weren't yet fully married yet. The wedding day had not come. That comes several hundred years later when Moses on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus had the wedding day. God and the people of Israel. God and humans were officially married. They covenanted together. They made their vows. That's what's going on in Exodus chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Call it a wedding day. That's basically what it is. It was a great wedding. Well, for a little bit. It ended tragically. At this wedding, while they were on their honeymoon, the bride, the people of Israel, they commit adultery. Seriously. Read Exodus. Read through chapter 20 all the way to the end of the book. And you'll see that they come together. They make a covenant. Everything's good. Everybody's celebrating. Yay, we're together. Moments later. They are worshiping another God. It's as if they went out for another lover. Could you imagine being on your honeymoon and having your spouse commit adultery? I mean, what chances? You're going to stick around with that loser. Really? I can't even imagine. Who in their right mind would stay with a spouse like that? And at this point of the story, we hear 
maybe one of the most important statements about God's love and character in the whole Bible. It's behind me, Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children to the fourth, third, and fourth generation. In the most delicate of moments, God reveals that he forgives sins. He has steadfast, it's the Hebrew word hesed. There's no good English translation. It's like three awesome words all blended together. It's love, it's faithfulness, it's commitment, it's hesed. And he says, I have that toward you. That's who I am. In other words, God does not leave his wife. It's a great story. Why? Because he loved her even when she was not very lovely. In fact, several years later, in the book of Deuteronomy, he tells his wife that the reason that he married her was not because she was so great, but because he loved her. Here's the verse. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Husbands, wives, I don't know if you've had these conversations. I know I did. I'm dating Christine. We're early married. We have these kind of silly conversations. Well, why do you love me? Why do you want to get married to me? Well, is it because I look so good? Or is it because I'm so strong and handsome? We have these kind of chats and we want to be affirmed. We want to be like, well, because, yeah, you're so great. It's not how God talks to his bride. He says, honestly, like, let's just point out the obvious. You're not that great. You committed adultery on our honeymoon. Like, you're not strong. You're not beautiful. You're kind of least out of all of the peoples. But you know why I'm with you? Because I love you. Well, why do you love me? Because I love you. Christine and I, when we got married on our wedding day, we decided for my sister, who's sitting in the back, she sang a, a special music number that kind of summed up what we thought our love should be about. And the song said this, I want a love that looks past positions, a love just because, not a love with conditions. You can search the whole world and find all kinds of love, but love that is real is love just because. You'd think, with love that deep, God's just because love for his bride, that he would make an amazing story for the rest of the Old Testament. An amazing foundation, right? Could you imagine having somebody just love you because they love you and stay with you even when you're at your worst? That's God. But the sad reality of this story of the Bible is that the wife did not just cheat on her husband on the honeymoon. The wife cheated on him again and again. And so many times we'd be saying again for the rest of the day.
And because of his steadfast, hesed love, he forgave and he forgave and he forgave 70 times seven, he forgave. Until the marriage got so bad and God said to Israel, look, I have been pursuing you for all of these years and it is obvious that you do not want to be with me. And Jeremiah speaks God's word and this is what he says. Jeremiah chapter three. The Lord said to me, Jeremiah, in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And so I thought, after she has done all of this, she might return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. The story of the Bible includes a spouse that is so hard-hearted that even though there is unlimited forgiveness, she keeps running away. God's divorce did not happen quickly or rashly. This was after thousands of years of trying to make it work. After dozens of prophets. But let's be honest, her heart was not in it. She really did not want to be married to him. And this would be a sad story if it ended here, wouldn't it? But it is more like those cheesy Hallmark Christmas movies where you know no matter how bad things are going to get, it's going to have a happy ending. That's the Bible. Right in the middle of the divorce, God sends love letters to his estranged wife and tells her, we're getting back together again. I know we divorced, but I'm coming for you. I'm not giving up. I'm going to do whatever it takes, and we're going to restore our broken marriage. And he more or less says, we're going to need a lot of counseling, but I have just the guy in mind. His name's Jesus. And God sent Jesus into the world in order to restore the very good creation of the world, the marriage of God and humans. A broken marriage. Not just a broken marriage of God and Israel, but God and all of humans. The original marriage, the marriage from the very beginning. God and all humans on the face of the earth. The story of the Bible is not a story about marriage and then divorce and then remarriage to a different spouse. So many times people summarize the story of the Bible, not with the marriage language, but, well, here was God's plan, and then it didn't go well, so he came up with another plan. No! No! That's not the story of the Bible! Plan A, creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We messed it up, guys. Plan A is still in effect. Whew, that's good! Otherwise, we're lost. That means he gives up on us. He chooses someone else. It's still plan A. There is no plan B. Jesus is plan A. God had a plan. And even though we messed it up, Jesus is going to restore, get us back on track, not take us back to the garden, but where the garden was pointing us to go in the first place. That's where we should be headed, to restore and to reconcile the marriage of heaven and earth. This is what Christmas is all about.
This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus answers the way he does in Matthew chapter 19 when they want to have a debate about Deuteronomy 24. Are you serious? Come on. It's Genesis 1 and 2. They missed the whole point. What God has joined together, let no man separate. It was only because of the hardness of your heart that Moses ever gave these instructions in the first place. Divorce is not God's ideal. Even when divorce happens, biblically grounded divorce, that is not ideal. Never is divorce ideal. Don't you see now how the whole story of the Bible is about God doing everything he can as a spouse to fix a broken marriage? A spouse ran off to be with multiple lovers, and every time it got bad, that it even led to a divorce, God still did not give up on her. He sent Jesus into the world. Ironically, his very birth was centered around controversies of sexual morality and marital unfaithfulness and divorce. Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, was about to divorce Jesus' mom, Mary, until God stepped in with an angel. And just like in the story of the whole Bible, God saved that marriage from a divorce. Jesus is the reason that Mary and Joseph are together. Jesus is the reason that you and I can be in a close personal relationship with God that is described maybe best as a covenant marriage-like relationship. Jesus, he is the one mediator that is going to bring God and humans back together again. We need somebody to kind of be a third party to reconcile this marriage Jesus is that mediator. Jesus, because he is fully God, he was able to be the husband who would lay down his life for the bride. But get this, Jesus, he's not just fully God, able to lay down his life for the bride. He also was fully man. Therefore, he was able to stand in the place as the adulterous wife and experience what it feels like to receive the curse of adultery, which was death. To be divorced by God and take on the sins of all humans as he was separated from the Father and died on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Jesus, the reason you should stay married. Because when he was raised to life on the third day and ascended to heaven in his new resurrected human body, he has right now given all of you the God sign that you need. The marriage has been restored. Now, the marriage between heaven and earth, the marriage between God and humans, that marriage was really messed up. Far worse than any of your marriages, I guarantee it. That marriage, the sign from the Bible, blasting, announcing through pulpits like this one, they're back together again. God and humans are right now, as we speak, every day you live, every moment you pray, there is a human in the presence of Almighty God, Jesus. Humans and, and heaven and earth, they're back together. What a glorious story of restoration. In the beginning, God and humans were close, had a personal relationship with God, were separated, but Jesus ends the divorce, brings them back together, 
And there's one final piece of good news for you and for me. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit called, the Greek word's the paraclete. It means that he is the helper. Or some translations say, God's counselor. Yeah, we might need some counseling too. The Holy Spirit is the one who will help get you and me and humanity back on track to Genesis 1 and 2. No matter how broken your relationship with God is, and no matter how broken your marriage is, because the Holy Spirit has been poured out and is accessible, why would we quickly divorce? Doesn't that go at odds with the entire story of the Bible? God never leaves his spouse. So should we? What God has joined together, let no man separate. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. That this word is in fact the divine inspired, inerrant word of God. That when Moses speaks, when Matthew speaks, when Peter speaks, when Paul speaks, we know it's you, God. We can hear your voice. We can listen to you, have a relationship with you, and be close. So we just want to thank you now for that amazing gift. And we want to pray the Holy Spirit would empower us to talk about and treasure and value marriage the way Jesus does. And we pray next week, God, that we would see that we would value and love singleness the way Jesus does too. Thank you for speaking to us in this time, at this place. May we be hearers, doers, and receivers of a hard teaching. In Jesus' name, amen.